Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is a weird one. We we talked for a minute before we hit record on how to handle this, and uh, there's no there's no there's no right way to 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 deal with something like this. It is uh, it's emotional. It's intense. It's stressful. It's heartbreaking. Um, scary. It's scary. It's a scary time. And it's tough to figure out, you know, we do these every Tuesday, how this, it clearly does not fit into the important stuff that's going on. Well, we like to provide an escape for people, even in normal times, like just come walk with us down memory lane, or in this case, memory lane and what's currently going on with the IU program. But I certainly have a fear of, of being tone deaf to what's going on in society right now. And is it something where the, we shouldn't be distracted right now? Should everybody be really focused on doing what they can to make this world a better place? Because it's like, you know, cities are burning right now and, and never mind the pandemic and all the other chaos. It's, you know, do, do people need escapes right now they do but i'm just not sure that's what society needs we we might need action and concentration yeah that said we're still going to release a podcast this week yeah i mean (laughs) i I, we've always wanted to bring people together with this podcast but you know we would be fools to sit here and think that the game of basketball which is so much about african-american players and white guys in the audience cheering them on that this is not relevant to, to the, the space we're, we're talking about here. It's also one of those things where you look at sports as a metaphor for life and, and an example. I mean, so much happens in the sports world that you just kind of wish parts of the sports world that you wish society would embrace. I mean, a basketball team, and look at any Indiana team that we cheer on and any in recent memory, and it's got a mix of white and black players, and many of those players are best of friends. I mean, best of friends. Like, it's like going to war together. You know, you're in the trenches, and they could give two shits what the color of somebody's skin is. But somehow, between a locker room and then the real world, some of that openness and acceptance just gets thrown out the window. And I, and I, I think about the teams, like I never think about the color of any of the skin of anybody that's been a player that we worship on this team. They're all, they all wear one color or two, they wear white and red. And and, and in the larger uh, context, we all wear, you know, red, white, and blue. And, and it's, it's a shame that it doesn't extend. With both sports, and I think of music in the same way, while they have a long history of segregation, you know, at some point before our lifetimes, when, when, when music and sports began mixing the cultures together and crossing the cultures over, 
it's like, oh, that's like a really important thing where where sports and music led the way for the rest of society to kind of fall in step. But obviously the process is very far from complete. And, you know, just looking at the news, which I've tried to avoid a lot over the last few months, but, you know, could, couldn't help but seeing what's going on in our own city at this point, never mind across the country. And it's just like, we've seen this before. We saw this a few years ago. We saw this when we were in high school with Rodney King. And it's like, how do we break out of this cycle? And, and before we were born, you look at what was going on in the late 60s in this country. And it's like, how on earth? do things get better? And I think generally this country, which obviously has a horrific, horrific past when it comes to race relations. And the whole path has been sort of two steps forward, one step back, maybe occasionally two steps back and one step forward, but there has been progress. And I feel like in our lifetimes, there's been progress, but now it feels in recent times, we're taking a real big step back. And I just want to do whatever I can to, to try to help get us in the right direction. But I don't know what that is. And I think a lot of people don't. Yeah, no one does. But I do think talking about it to each other and to whoever else will have a dialogue is, is what we can do right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I'm remembering when, I think it was Downing, when we had Steve Downing on and he talked about when Coach Knight got the job and when he stepped into that job, there was a lot of racial division going on on Indiana's campus and specifically within the basketball team. Mm -hmm. And there was a real uh, division there between some black and white players. And they asked Knight in the interview process, like, how are you going to deal with you know, black players versus white players. And Coach Knight in 1971, his answer was like, can they play basketball? Like, I, I don't care. And the, the, I know it's callous and it's trivial and it's about basketball, but it's like, I just, how you get people to just not care is, uh, man, it's, it's awful. I, I do, it's a complicated thing because I do think while this incident that happened to this poor guy in Minnesota does seem like a giant step back. There is so much progress on a macro level. I know we're not there yet. I get that. But are we better than we were in 1990? I think so. Are we better than we were in 1970? We can't answer that. That's not a question we can Well, no, answer. but you can look at, there are certain things that we can have the conversation. We can't talk about if it feels better. We have no idea if it feels better. We're two white guys. I have no idea if how it feels to be an African-American in this country is any different than it felt 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. No idea. You're absolutely right. But when you look at some macro things about employment and college degrees and things like that, things are trending in the right direction. Fast enough? No. Good enough? No. I just hope things like this don't what scares me the most is things like this make everybody like go into their worst corners. I mean, we see it with the protests. I mean, these, the protests, God bless the people that are peacefully protesting. That's what this Which is the is vast, 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 vast yes. majority of the protests. Yes, but then they get overrun by the pieces of shit that ruin it for everybody. I mean, you turn on the TV now, they're not even talking about the guy. The, the fact is, 
the vast, vast majority of the people showed up, say, you know, here in Los Angeles at Pan Pacific Park to peacefully protest violence against people of color. And that should have been what was played all over the news all day and all night. But instead, the media makes all its money from fear and and from sensation. And action. And action. action. So they're going to show the car on fire instead of a couple blocks away where 10,000 people we're sitting peacefully together. And that's, that to me, I think is, is this, you know, the sickness of the system where it keeps feeding on itself instead of breaking away to what the bigger picture is and what could actually make society better. Yeah. And, and I have no answers except that, you know, I'm really into, I've read a bunch of these books and, and, and kind of um, philosophies from these people who talk about the way to change anything is that the very first thing you have to do is you have to get yourself in order like mm-hmm. you 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 have to fix yourself in whatever way you can and once you fix yourself or you you're on the right path then worry about your family and the people that are closest to you and talk to them and i've talked to my i have three kids 12 10 and 7 and we talked to all of them about what was going on and yeah. had a conversation and then once you talk to your family and hopefully get them on the right path, then you move out to your community, right? Your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and you try to do something local. And you just kind of, you know, it's one of those like Russian dolls where it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But it starts with, <clears throat> excuse me, it starts with just doing what we can for ourselves and our families and then hopefully widening out to the community. It's a hard conversation to have with a 12, 10, and 7-year-old. Oh yeah. I I brought my daughter, I brought my daughter into the garage. My son, he's still a little too young. You know, we've had broader conversations with him, um, but not specifically about what's going on now. And on one hand, my daughter's 10 and I want to shield her from this. You want her to keep that innocence, but you can't. Yeah. And and I've already given her enough history lessons. She has the context. So it's like, look, kid, you got to go know what's going on right now hoping that you will be a part of the solution in your time instead of part of the problem. It's heartbreaking. The whole thing is heartbreaking. And, and just to, you know, the old adage that one person is a tragedy, thousands of people are statistics. And obviously we saw what happened with one person, the tragedy in Minnesota, but it also hit close to home in the Indiana world where Chris Beatty, the news came out, that Chris Beatty, former football player at Indiana and somebody who had stayed very close to Indiana University and the pro- football program and, every, and the basketball program too. Lots of former athletes have tweeted out their love. He was shot and killed amidst these protests somehow. We have no idea what the details are. I don't know if you have any other, you've read anything else. The same as you, just you know, that he was clearly so beloved. By the way, by white and black. Yes. Like, it's just, I, I don't mean to put him on in public here, but I'm going to say it. Like, I saw that Chris Beatty went to um, Cathedral High School. I saw mm-hmm. that that's where he went. And Sam Story went to Cathedral. And Sam and I text every once in a while, for those of you who don't make the connection, that's Coach SS on the Peags boards. And I said, did you know Chris? And he's devastated by it. He's yeah. like, yes, we're old Cathedral buddies. And... And just told me how, like he is, he was just such a good soul, like energetic, enthusiastic, loved life, loved Indiana, formed like a marketing 
company post uh, playing career that, that helped do things around the program. I mean, you saw Cam Cameron tweeted about him. Tom Allen tweeted about him. I mean, so many people. Eric Gordon, Yogi Ferrell. It is a, I mean, it's a life that is gone. One of our listeners, Scott Rappaport, who's local here in LA, they were in McNutt together and he posted several pictures of them together. And, and it's just like, there it is, whether it's the riot happening outside of your office here in LA or somebody who was dorming with him in Bloomington almost 20 years ago, this is affecting all of us right now. And I don't know. I don't know if this is this is some sort of tipping point where we can. It point does back feel different, say, right? Well, when you combine it with COVID and and obviously this country is so at odds politically, this I think is a is just a human rights issue. It it transcends and hopefully it does. And obviously politics plays in everything right now. But it's such it's such a pressure cooker in this country. Will this help help? a real change happen, maybe less incremental, less like watching paint dry as so much of the progress has been over the last 200 plus years. Is this something where something very significant happens in the coming weeks and months that we can all look back to and be like, I'm sorry it had to get to that point, but at least we all came out of it a better country and more united because of it. It's, it's hard to see that right now, but I think we have to fight for that. That's the dream is that he didn't pass in vain and that, that there's something that can be taken from it. I, I just don't have any answers. And the truth is, I, you know, again, you and I talked for a moment before this. I tweeted something yesterday when I typically on the Monday before we, re, um, Sunday or Monday before we release a, a podcast, I tweet out who's going to be on the show. And I was like, how do I phrase this without just seeming like i am got my head buried in the sand and not paying attention? And I said in the tweet, look, our goal when we started this was to have fun, to um, provide fun content that, that if our family and friends listened to, hopefully it put a smile on their face. And then it turned into something that gave people that were part of our IU community some happiness and some escape. And, and I hear you about, um, you know, maybe we all need to be a little more focused right now and put down the, the external kind of distractions. But I also think, you got to have some levity amidst the darkness and, and, you know, this podcast we're putting out tomorrow. And if you want to listen to it tomorrow or, or Tuesday, great. And if you want to put it aside for a few weeks and then come back to it when you're in a better headspace, great. Um, to focus on that for a second, I was really excited to talk to this guy because it was a big deal when he came back to Indiana. Oh, when they announced the hire, we said, we got to get him on the pod. Yeah. Cause we all said we got one of our own back. Mm -hmm. And I, it's funny because everything you say is like tinged with what's going on in the world. But I say that like one of our own. Like, does race ever figure into that when we say that about an Indiana Hoosier? Never. Absolutely right? not. Absolutely and, not. Um, anyway, this guy, we were excited when they hired him. We were excited when we saw some stuff on the uh, sidelines. Mm -hmm. But we were real excited after we got a chance to meet him after a big win against Ohio State, we ran into him at Knicks with the coaching, the, the rest of the staff that was there. And holy hell, were we like, what do we do to keep this guy? I mean, this is our guy. Things are turning up. This is, this is the guy to help steer the ship.
you had one strategy, which we'll reveal inside the pod as, as to how you wanted to keep him around. It, it's just so much fun to have a guy who, you know, played for, this guy grew up loving Indiana. Like we did got to live out the dream of playing for Indiana, even though he had moved almost as far away as you can move in the continental United States, but still that love and that bond to Indiana remain strong as it does for us and for anybody who listens to our podcast they get it and he gets it and he played and then he came back and he's back and it's just such a great thing to have that because we've talked about that being a missing component of the first three years or I should say two years of Archie Miller's uh, run here well and and frankly something going back since coach Knight left we recorded this conversation kind of before the uh, powder keg that is what's happening in the country kind of got set off. So we don't touch on that with, with our guests. And we, we recorded the outro to it before as well. So that's why we wanted to take a minute here. I just hope everybody listening to our show and your families are safe. Uh, hope you're having the conversations that we're all having. I think it's important everybody remembers that his name was George Floyd. There we go. So hope you enjoy the podcast when you get to it. And uh, hopefully a week's time when we talk to you again, things will be a little bit better. And each week after that, a little bit and a little bit and a little bit better. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of Hysterics Nation, we have players from the past and occasionally people on the current coaching staff what we have today is a combination of both. Yes. Eric, tell them who we're talking to. We are talking to a gentleman who hails from Terre Haute, Indiana, took a slight detour out to the Pacific Northwest where he lived in Eugene, Oregon. He attended South Eugene High School before moving on to New Hampton School in New Hampshire. He is, of course, a gentleman who committed to Indiana University and coach Robert Montgomery Knight. He is a three-time academic All-Big Ten winner. He is the Big Ten Sportsmanship Award winner in 2005 and team captain of the Indiana Hoosiers in 2005. After his career playing at Indiana, he became a grad assistant. Who would be the best person to ever be a grad assistant for? Maybe Bobby Knight? Maybe Bobby Knight, the greatest coach of all time. He did that down in Texas Tech. He's had several stops along his assistant coaching career. Most recently, he was at UNC Greensboro, where he helped the Spartans reach the 20-win mark each of the last three seasons for the first time in program history, including a 29-win campaign. The Spartans at UNC Greensboro also earned a trip to either the NCAA tournament or the NIT each of those last three years. He then took the jump when Archie came a-calling to come back home come back to Bloomington, Indiana University, and guess what? What happened when Mike Roberts showed up as, oh, I said his name, I should have done that. Hold on, I gotta redo that. What happened when this gentleman made his first year back at Indiana as an assistant coach? Oh, I don't know, we were ready to be back in the NCAA tournament because wherever this dude goes, winning follows. Please welcome the boss man, Mike Roberts. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Ward. Uh, happy to be here. Pleasure to do this. What did you think hearing all that stuff? That all sound good? It all sounded good. Uh, I've been lucky. Been with a lot of good teammates and a lot of other good coaches. Uh, brings back some good memories of some good teams I was a part of. Well, we're going to get into it all, but let's start with we are in the end of May right now. 
Uh, we are, you know, the, the school year has obviously wrapped up. Classes have wrapped up. We are full bore into thinking about next season. And of course, we're in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis. Coach, just tell us what is your day-to-day like right now? What is a normal day looking like for you? A normal day is get up in the morning. Uh, my sons, I have a fourth grade son and a first grade son. So they're now done with distance learning, which is a relief. Mess around with them. <laughs> Amen. Uh, you know, feed them some breakfast, try to keep them from killing each other throughout the course of the day. Uh, then we do well, usually a staff Zoom at some point, mid-morning, 10 or 11 a.m. Uh, obviously, we mix in some recruiting calls. I take my uh, – I have three different sanity walks I do, guys. I've got a one-hour walk, a two-hour walk, and a four-hour walk, which I try to do, you know, about six of those a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, wait, stop, stop, wait, we got to stop. Four hour yeah. walk? You do a four yeah. hour, what the hell do you do for four hours? Are you listening talk, to music? I, Are you talking I to talk people? on my phone, try to keep, you know, I'm trying not to be a fat man, so I try to keep myself <laughs> moving, you know, that's it. Mike, the last <laughs> yeah. time we talked, you said you were putting in 200 push-ups a day. You sticking with that? Yeah, I'm doing that, but it's, I mean, I'm still fat, but we're working on it. <laughs> you a, would be fatter if you weren't doing that. But yeah. a, a four-hour walk in Bloomington, are you just circling the entire city in four hours? So I live way out on the southeast side, so we'll walk all the way down to downtown area, down by the square, and walk down from there, go to assembly hall sometimes, stop, you know, just maybe take a little bathroom break there, walk down to Lake Griffey, walk back up walk back up by the practice uh, facility, walk out the extension, and back out to the southeast side. So, that, now, I'll, I'll be honest, that one doesn't happen frequently, but it does <laughs> The one and the two hour are more frequent, but every now and then, we, we've done the long walk. The when long I was going, and on the way home, of course, you, you hit White Castle. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that, that, that's the debate that always goes, I, I always go through my mind is, is like, okay, I've done all this exercise, it's great. Do I order Mother Bears and pick it up? <laughs> yes. Totally. Always the answer yes. is yes. I'm telling you, I, the four-hour walk would do nothing for me because whatever I lost in calories, I'd hit Buffaloes for an appetizer of wings. I'd hit Mother Bears on the other side of town. I'd be like, man, it was a long walk from Buffaloes to Mother Bears. I earned a nice half <laughs> of deep dish pizza. And then, yeah, yeah, maybe White Castle on the way home just because it took me a, a, you know, a few hundred calories to get home. White Castle is an Indiana tradition, but I'm not a White Castle guy, you know, so but Mother Bears, I'm all about pizza is my downfall. Everybody knows that. It's OK. You you can shun the big box chains on this show. We're really about promoting the local businesses here. We, we usually wait on the Bloomington restaurant tour till the end of our time with somebody who spent time in Bloomington. But let's hit it right now. Now, obviously, Mother Bears, you, you've professed your love for. What do you think yeah. of this new place, King Doe, that I hear a lot of good things about at Kirkwood? I have to admit, I know exactly where it is. I've never been there yet, but right. I've heard it's good. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Mother Bear's Pizza X guy. So yes. during the season when, when things aren't going well, you know, I may order a late night Pizza X and crush like three quarters of a pizza on the <laughs> Just so. eat your feelings. <laughs> Mike, yeah. Mike, this is no joke. When Ward and I were back the last time, I think it was the last time. What It was two or three in the morning. Sure, and yeah. Ward came up to my room. Was it in your room or my room? I think we started in your room and then eventually I, I, I retreated. We sat on a 
king size bed together, laid down, had a Big Ten special, and just watched ESPN highlights while we crushed that entire thing. Breadsticks, pizza, two cokes, the whole damn thing. Oh, it's it's so bad but so good, right? It really is. It really is. What about if you if you don't want pizza, what what restaurant are you going to in Bloomington for your go to food? I'm a big Malibu guy. I think it's kind of been a staple for a long time. Uh, it's really good. Um, yeah, I'd probably say Malibu's the main. The main if I was going to go to a sit down. Uh, my wife likes farm. I think it's called right. Yeah. Oh yeah, love the farm. Uh, what about Zagreb? You hit Zagreb's? Yeah, I, I love Zagreb's. Uh, yeah, obviously it's the best. <laughs> it's the best steakhouse in Bloomington. No, it's the best steakhouse in the world. That's what I say. Uh, so no. Mike, walk us through, you, you talked about recruiting and the zoom calls. What, what is it like, um, being an assistant coach right now with Archie running the show? Does he delegate a lot? Do you, are you left to kind of, you know, he trusts you to do your thing. And obviously you haven't worked for him that long. You, you're, you're just coming up on your first year anniversary here in August. What what has it been like just the learning curve of working for a new guy after so many years with the same staff? Yeah, I mean, every time you come into a new staff, obviously you're trying to, you know, figure out what your niche is and how you can help, you know, contribute to winning, whether that's, you know, with the guys on court coaching and then obviously recruiting is a big piece to that. So, uh, you know, we, we like I said, we're doing a Zoom call mid-morning, uh, Monday through Saturday right now, you know, watching old games, either offense and defense. And obviously at some point during that call, either on the front end or back end, we're going to have some discussion about recruiting. Um, so, you know, you've got your, your core group of kids that you're talking to as an assistant coach. And then uh, as you get down the road, obviously at certain points, you'll involve Archie in that process. So, you know, we'll have conversations about, hey, you know, please call this kid at this time or this kid's going to call you at this time. And then we're also occasionally setting up Zoom presentations uh, with staff members, which, you know, that's kind of a that's a new new thing that all of us are doing. I shouldn't say all, but I don't think many people were doing a bunch of Zoom, right? Uh, you know, presentations. But with with, you know, the pandemic, it's you got to get creative. And I think one thing that's been good about it, to be frank, is that I think we're seeing some instances where obviously there's nothing like face-to-face -face interaction, I think, because it allows you to get a little bit different feel for people. But there's some things that maybe we can do moving forward that are more cost efficient and time efficient, you know, over, over presentations like Zoom. Absolutely. When we had Archie on the podcast, he said same thing. He's like, you know, when this thing ends, I'm not sure we're going to go back to all the travel that was happening before you know, everybody having to leave their family the second the season ends and you're just on the road and never see them. Why? Like, we can cut a lot of that out with doing these Zooms. And clearly, at some point, you got to be with these kids face-to-face. -face, but this whole thing could change how everybody recruits in college basketball and football, for that matter. Yeah, no question. I mean, usually our, our life uh, as Division One coaches is when the season's over, um, you know, especially in April, you're all over the country in April trying to see kids and then, you know, July is the similar type of deal. And then I just added a thing a couple of years ago with the June high school events. So, um, you know, I think the one thing that we are potentially missing out on is, you know, some evaluations of kids that we had tracked a little bit through the season. And, you know, we had said, hey, we want to see this kid play in April AAU and then June and July. And we, there's probably a few kids that have really improved that, you know, be quote unquote sleepers that if we would have had the opportunity to see them play, 
uh, AAU in April, we'd be recruiting that maybe we're not now. But, I mean, that's everybody. Everybody's got the same challenges. So, uh, you know, I think it's made us watch some more film of kids we're recruiting potentially. Right. Uh, and then, and then, I mean, I think everybody does the due diligence in terms of calling people and asking questions about kids and all the people around them. But I mean, there's no excuse now. What, I mean, what else are you going to be doing? You don't have any other thing that you're, you're allowed to do. Right. So might as well be diligent on that front. So w- what we're looking at here now is with the recent news of, of Justin leaving, there's 11 scholarships open or I'm sorry, taken and two open. So are you guys, at all feeling like, hey, we should look at the portal transfer a little more closely, or is there maybe a senior that hasn't committed yet, or is it pretty much like, look, we're good with 11, and if somebody really pops and makes sense, we'll consider it, or what's the mindset? How do you how do you yeah. deal with sort of a last-second loss like that? I mean, obviously, you're always recruiting. You're always trying to make sure that you know some options that are out there in case something like what happens with Justin occurs, you know, this year we carried 11 scholarship players. So we're obviously always exploring situations that might become available through the portal or maybe an international prospect that isn't as well known. Um, and so, you know, I, I think one thing is if all 11 guys on your roster can legitimately play in the game, I mean, that's more than enough. So one thing that, that we've talked to some kids that are transfers, one thing that's complicated with our roster as it relates to transfers is most of these grad transfer kids they want guarantees of minutes and guarantees of opportunities and even with Justin leaving you know we have a lot returning so unless a kid is just an absolutely elite talent you know it's like they're gonna have to battle for any any time they get so that's hurt us some I think on that front and you're just always trying to keep your options open and, and see what's out there so to answer your question probably the latter you know, obviously, we feel that we have enough to have a really good team with the 11 scholarship guys and the preferred walk-ons we have. If, if the right young man were to come available, then obviously we'd explore that as well. And I'd have to imagine also when you're bringing in a junior-senior grad transfer who has a year or two left, you're like, well, maybe this guy can help us right away this season a little bit more than player X, Y, or Z on the roster. But you got you got four great guys coming in this year, and I'm sure you know a lot of it has to factor in. Like, well, it's not just about this season, but are you looking like, hey, we want to get our freshmen and sophomores more run, so not just this season, but the season after and season after we're stronger when that grad transfer is already gone because he used up his time. You just want to try to put the best group of players you can on the court, whether they're incoming freshmen or whether they're grad transfers. You know, so I think sometimes people look too much into hey, the young guys playing or, you know, this grad transfer coming in and being impactful, which obviously, you know, Joey was a grad transfer, but I think he's a different type of grad transfer Mm -hmm. because he's a rarity and that he's a two-year guy. So I think uh, that makes him very different from the average run-of-the-mill grad transfer. Um, It allows for more buying and more connection with teammates. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, as a coach, you're looking to put the best group of 9 to 11 players that's going to play every game out there. And regardless of what class it is. And obviously there's some things with some incoming guys that, you know, we think we have a feel for what they may be, but until you get out there and practice and see them play against division one competition every day with your own two eyes, you're not really sure, you know, we're really excited about the group we've got coming in. No question. All right. So let's get into the beginning of your basketball story. Take us back to Terre Haute, Indiana and how Mike Roberts found the game of basketball. 
Um, well, you know, like everywhere in Indiana, basketball's huge. I'm a Terre Haute Boys Club kid, so when I was a kid growing up, Larry Bird had actually donated a lot of money back at that time to the to the Boys Club, so they had a really organized youth league starting when you were five years old. I mean, like, it's crazy. The first team I ever played on had a kid named Maynard Lewis who went on to play at Purdue, was running up for Mr. Basketball. I was on this team. We had a kid named Ryan McCoy that, you know, went to Indiana State to play baseball, so it was a really competitive, really well organized uh, sports league. You know, they had a bunch of great camps through uh, Terre Haute North High School and the Boys Club. So I just grew up playing in all those leagues. And uh, when I was, you know, in late elementary school, I got on a, a good AAU team out of Terre Haute with a guy named Steve Fleshner that's a attorney that played in Indiana State. And he took us all around the country playing 10, 11, 12, and under AAU basketball. And that kind of really got me going and seeing that there was more out there and seeing how good you might have to be to try to play division one. Cause we play in, you know, national AAU tournaments and national tournaments in, in Florida, et cetera. So uh, that, that's kind of how I got my start. Now you can't play the kind of AAU basketball you're talking about. And as much basketball as you're talking about without parents who are totally supportive uh, and getting you from point A to point B, what were your folks like uh, growing up? How much did they push you into basketball, support it? Just give us a sense for what, the boss's parents were like yeah so um you know my father was in construction management uh he had his own separate com company but most of the contracts he did uh were with sony corporation who had a big factory at the time in Terre Haute. so we actually lived right outside of the city in Terre Haute. but uh, like in the summer for example this time of year every single day he as he was going into work he'd drive me and drop me off in front of the boys club and i was like a, a club rat you know what i mean i did <laughs> I know I'd wait for him to open the doors. I'd play bumper pool. I'd play ping pong. I'd play pickup. I'd probably do things I wasn't supposed to at the restaurants across the street. And then he'd pick me up when he got off work. So, I mean, I was just always, I was like a little gym rat, always playing. And then through that, you know, obviously I got recognized by, like I said, the guy, Steve Fleshner. So, you know, basketball is just kind of what we did in the summer. My uh, mom's father, uh, he was a center at the University of Buffalo back in the day. That's kind of where I got my height. So there was basketball in the family. Thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> now you yeah. ha you had the uh, the the hick from French Lick, obviously as a patron of basketball there in Terre Haute, Larry Legend, but a couple, at least a couple of Indiana legends came out of Terre Haute. We just had the honor and privilege of speaking with Bobby Slick Leonard and uh, an old friend of the pod, Brian Evans, has been on. How much are those guys in the conversation? around Terre Haute in the game of basketball? Are they just kind of held up and revered by all? Or or was it more something you had to find yourself as, as you came to Bloomington? My dad was a guy that would always take me to high school games, even when I can remember in like early elementary school. So I actually grew up watching uh, Brian Evans and a guy named Steve Hart who came here oh, yeah. both sure. South playing. Number uh, 23. Steve Hart, could, Steve Hart could literally jump over people. Uh, he was an unbelievable athlete. So I remember going and watching them play. Uh, you know, I, I was just a little kid, but I can remember my mom. My grandfather was friends with Clyde Lavellet. Wow. Uh, I was another tarot guy that played at Kansas. And so, uh, and then kind of as I've gotten older, there's a guy named Charlie Hall from Terre Haute that uh, played baseball and basketball at, uh, at IU. And then he's one of Coach Knight's really good friends. And I got to know him really well when I was at GA. So my dad's kind of like a sports historian. So when I was a kid, he'd always take me to – I can remember when I was little – 
you know, I was going to go to Terre Haute North, but Brian Evans and Steve Hart were the best players in Terre Haute. So he would take me to as many of those games as possible. Like my dad took me to watch Damon Bailey play when I was little. Like he was always whoever was supposedly the best high school players, you know, he'd take me to, to see them play, you know. And so you'd hear a lot about the good players from Terre Haute. And there were some really good players when I was growing up. There was another guy uh, that went to Terre Haute South named Tony McGee, who actually played at Michigan as a tight end and played in the NFL forever. But he was an unbelievable high school basketball player. So I remember as a kid watching those guys play. So we're not too far away in age, uh, a little bit older than you. But we grew up around the same time in the 80s. Uh, our, one of our first memories of Indiana basketball is, of course, Keith Smart hitting the shot in 87. And, of course, when you grow up an Indiana fan, and I would imagine especially when you grow up in Indiana, at that time, Bob Knight is just a god. I mean, he is just above everything. What was Bob Knight and, and that persona, what did that mean to you growing up? Well, I mean, th this is embarrassing to admit, but come from Terre Haute, when I was a little kid, like, I literally thought, Indiana University was basically like the basketball team and what you saw on Raycom Channel 4, right? Yeah. So we, well, we would watch every game. Um, you know, I, I was seven when they won the national championship. I can remember, uh, like, my parents going to parties to watch all those games in the NCAA tournament. I don't remember this. My dad said when I was even younger that I loved Uwe Blob as a player. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. and so it was cool. I, I got to meet Uwe when I was uh, a GA at Texas Tech. He was living in Austin and came over to work the camp. So, you know, like in our household, the Hoosiers were always on, you know, any Channel 4 game. I can remember we were playing AU. Obviously, back then there weren't cell phones or the Internet, but we were always trying to, you know, figure out if we had AU games or whatever, or league games, what the score of the Indiana game was. So I grew up on it. And then I can vividly remember, you know, all the – all the teams from like the 89 up through that, you know, I grew up watching the really good teams with Calvert Chaney and Graham and, you know, keep going over Evans. Uh, I mean, I can just keep naming all yeah. those guys. I watching all those guys play. Now, when did you start realizing that you, you one were going to be an enormous human being and two, you had the, the skill and athleticism to go with that, that you were like, Oh man, this is going to be a beyond the, the boys and girls club. This is going to be beyond high school. I can, I can do this. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I just played mostly basketball, but I'm like every kid. I grew up playing all sports as a kid. And then when I was in eighth grade, my family moved uh, to Eugene, Oregon for a construction management project. My father was on and, uh, between eighth grade and my freshman year, I was a guard. All of a sudden, I went from five nine to six three and a half in one summer. Uh, and, and so that was a painful summer. And to be honest, I was just probably a slightly above average player. And then all of a sudden, I was a six three and a half freshman. And by the time the season started, my freshman year, I was six five. And actually, my coach is from Indiana. He played at uh, Columbus High School, which is now Columbus North, with this famous coach named Stearman. Uh, and so he had a lot of faith in me. He was a really good coach. And so I started playing varsity basketball on a team in Oregon, uh, South Indian High School, where I went. But, you know, we were a top four team in the state. We had two Division One players, one going to Washington State, one going to University of Portland. So, you know, I was, I was getting in those games on occasion as a freshman. And then I got involved in some pretty high-level AU teams in Oregon. So by, by the middle of my sophomore year of high school, I thought that, you know, I had a legitimate chance to play Division One. I. I didn't know Big Ten. 
And then I just kept kind of slowly improving and growing like an inch every year. And, and, and so by the time I was a junior in high school, I was sure I was going to be a Division One player and what level was kind of to be determined. Now, going back real quick, because when you were seven, we, we just glanced over it, but when Indiana won the national title, do you remember where you were when that happened? Do you remember watching it? Yeah, I remember. I was at a house party. Uh, one of my dad's family friends, uh, this this physician in Terrell, last name Davis, I remember we were there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember that. Like, and, and I remember that we had been at that same house when I think they played UNLV the game before that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's correct. So, I mean, you know, I was little. It wasn't like I was paying attention to the game, but I remember everybody was glued around the TV and, and us watching those games. And, and do you were you a kid who went out to the driveway and imagined yourself playing for IU? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was playing for IU, or we were big Celtics fans because of Larry Bird, so I was either playing for IU or the Celtics when I was that age. When uh, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, my dad grew up in Gary and East Chicago, and when we would drive to Indiana, which was often from St. Louis, you, of course, passed through Terre Haute. Now, I will say this. Terre Haute did have a distinct smell to it. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there by I-70, we had an interesting combination of, I think it's like a, a plastics factory, a dog food factory. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's a third one that I, you know, I used to know that was like, if the wind was blowing right, it was a great smell, <laughs> a great concoction of aromas just all mixing together. So, you know, my whole life, you know, it, it's it's subsided now, but I can remember even when I went to IU, like, oh, where are you from? I'm like from Terre Haute. They're like, oh, I, I smell Terre Haute. When I <laughs> but, but, but I love Terre Haute. You know, those, those people there were great for me. Uh, I had really, really positive influences growing up, and I, I still have some really good friends from there, so I'm not hating on Terre Haute. I love them. No. I will say the last time I was in Terre Haute, I was traveling across country. I just visited Eric's father in his cigar store in St. Louis, <laughs> and we were driving on 70, passing across the state line, and we had to stop in Terre Haute for White Castle. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's also the Larry Bird like restaurant there, right? Or Yeah, so that used to be, when I was a kid growing up, that was called Larry Bird's Boston Connection. Um, and so my, my best friend, uh, growing up's mother ran the restaurant. And so you could shoot free throws in there. Yes, exactly. And that place used to be packed. Um, and then, you know, I don't know the whole dynamic of it, but, um, you know, once he was no longer affiliated with the Celtics, they changed the colors to blue and gold Pacer colors. And it became the home court hotel with like Ah. Pacer uh, versus versus that and then now you know it's kind of seen hard times it's just a run-of-the-mill hotel on third street but so, when i was a little kid that place was a big deal see when it, we would always come down to bloomington uh of course i'm coming i'm coming from up in peru and you're going down 37 through martinsville and there's larry bird motors yes so we'd go in there and we'd just buy a couple cars <laughs> and, we're like, and we're like we get to meet yeah. larry now yeah, right? right and they're like no that's not yeah. how it works you, it's like you get a punch card at a restaurant yeah you have to buy 10 uh-huh. cars before you get to meet no larry not Legend. nine and then the 10th nine. car is free and larry <laughs> drives it to your house I, look yeah. i have really fond memories of Terre Haute because coming from st louis Terre Haute meant we're getting close like we're yeah. across the state line. It felt like I hated driving through Illinois. I hate that state. I hated driving that that stretch. But then when you got to Terre Haute, it was like, yes, we are amongst our people now. Yeah, you're close. Yeah, yeah you're close. It just yes. felt better. All right. So you're in Eugene. You're kicking ass in high school. You know you're going to be a Division One player. 
what happens first? Do you get contact from Indiana University about potentially playing there, or do you make the move to New Hampton School in New Hampshire? Which one of those things no, happens first? Um, so I was getting recruited. I, I was really skinny uh, going into my senior year. You know, I was like six, seven and a half. I grew another inch and a half after that, but like a hundred and nothing. So like, uh, half, half of the PAC 10 schools were recruiting me kind of like a wait and see basis. Uh, Nebraska was in the big 12 at that time. They were recruiting me really hard. And I actually had a teammate in high school, uh, whose father was high up at the university of Oregon and, you know, miles brand actually, uh, he knew miles brand. So he brought me up to Miles Brand. And then the other thing was I would always go back to Terre Haute in August and work out at Terre Haute North High School because it was a better setup to work out and stay with some family or this AU coach I was talking about, mm-hmm. Steve Fleshner, and a guy named Jim Jones who actually coached Larry Bird in high school. He was the coach at Terre Haute North High School. So they had heard about me through, I believe, a letter that this guy, Jim Turborg, had sent to Indiana and – through this high school coach. And so I was back for a family reunion uh, in the summer of 98 going into my senior year. And somehow they got, I don't know how they got wind of it, but I was in the state. They, they called my dad and we did an unofficial visit uh, in the fall of my senior year. And then from that, uh, it was a short, very abbreviated unofficial visit. And from that, Pat Knight came out and watched me work out at my high school in the fall. Hmm. And then from there, you know, I knew about New Hampton School because Steve Hart, who's from Terre Haute, had gone to New Hampton School. And, and so I'd grown up watching him. And so, you know, they said, hey, if you want to go to Indiana, we think you need a year of prep. And I was like, where do I sign up? You know, let's go. <laughs> awesome. uh, uh, and so Indiana was my dream school. I, I was starting to get some more recruitment, but it's actually funny that the story, you know, obviously I didn't end up being any great player when I was here, but I was getting recruited at a pretty high level. But literally – it was like one of those deals where Pat and I told my dad, you know, they were going to call with coach and you know, I was going to get on the phone with coach. And literally it was like, Hey, you know, it'd be a good idea to go to prep. Would you want to come? Yes, sir. And like, all right, here's Pat, you know, <laughs> but, you know it wasn't, it wasn't a complicated recruitment, you know, what, what, what was the first time you met coach Knight? I first met coach Knight uh, on that unofficial visit uh, in August uh, for the family reunion in 98. And then Pat came out that fall. And then I had a long sit down with him, uh, in the same fall of 98, I came on my unofficial visit, uh, on my official visit. I'm sorry. My senior year of high school and they were playing, I can't remember like athletes in action or yeah. one of those teams like that. Oh, wait, you, exhibition. Get, you got to walk us through that first time on that unofficial visit. Are you nervous as hell when you know you're going to meet him? Yeah, I mean, I was I was really nervous. The, fu- the funny story is on my official visit. Uh, so it's it's a they have a game uh, the next day versus athletes in action, whoever it is. And Kyle Hornsby was my host, so he obviously you know he's he, he's he's to the T. He's he's you know locked in on the game. And but we, you know we don't have anything. We just have breakfast with coach. And so some of the other guys on the visit. Uh, went out and I was like, no, I got to be coached for breakfast. So I just went back to my hotel and they still bag on me about that to this day. So, wait, wait, wait. Know, I got to know though, the guys that were going out, was that like Fife and Coverdale? Well, no, Fife was on the team. Coverdale was at New Hampton prep at the time. Oh, okay, so he was on it. that same official visit. So oh. yeah, he was going out. Oh yeah. Guy- <laughs> you know, Cubs going out. You know, <laughs> there was a guy named, 
there was a guy named Key Madison uh, who was committed here that was also at New Hampton with him. And then a, another kid, Trey, I want to say Ferguson was his name. He was from Alabama. He never showed up uh, at IU, but it was the four of us. So, you know, the other three recruits were like, yeah, let's go out. And I was like, oh, we got breakfast with Coach. I'm, I'm going back to the hotel. And what's breakfast with Coach like? I um, mean, it's good. You know, I mean, like, as you know with Coach is – when you, when he when he wants to be really engaging in a setting like that, I mean, it was really easy. And that after a few thirty seconds, you know, on that day, he was in a good mood, and it, it was easy. We just talked about basketball, what what he expected of me for my senior year, what he expected of me going into New Hampton, and and you know, obviously, we got to sit there and observe all the preparations for that exhibition game. So. Mike, if I mean, we, we grew up similarly in that we worshiped Indiana basketball and, you know, Ward and I are awful athletes and have no basketball ability whatsoever. But a, the dream would have been to play for Indiana University. If I got to the point where Coach Knight offered me a scholarship and said, I want you to come here, I would have obviously politely but enthusiastically told him yes and looking forward to it, sir, and I will bust my ass. And then I would leave whatever room I was in and I would go batshit crazy that that just happened. Did you oh. take a moment to be like, holy shit, I'm going to go play for Indiana? Well, yeah. I mean, when Coach called the house with Pat, you know, I we were basically under the understanding that he was probably going to offer me a scholarship with the understanding that I'd do the year of prep. But, like, it wasn't 100%. Now, you get, you know my dad, like if once he put that out there, I wouldn't accept on the, that second. I would have been disowned, but I, I wanted to anyway. <laughs> so, so your, your dad's a good man. Yeah, you know, so it, it was just one of those deals. Hey, you know, I think you should go to – I was like, yes, sir. What, you know, yes. I mean, I was, I was ecstatic. I was kind of in shock there for, for a bit. But it was almost like uh, they, they came to see you. There's the unofficial. And it's like, hey, if you go do this and this, we want you to come here. But but it was maybe a little bit hard to be like, this is the moment where it was 100% happening. And by the time it was official, you had even well, a couple of the, years the, to process yeah. it. And the truth of it was, is like we had done our research and there were some kids that had gone to New Hampton with the understanding that they might end up in Indiana and they hadn't performed. So to be frank, I, I felt like it wasn't ever said, but I felt like, and so did my dad that, Hey, I need to have a good senior year. And I needed to play well at New Hampton school. Uh, you know? And, and, and so I wasn't, I was still nervous about it every day, to be honest, until I signed my letter of intent in the fall of 99, you know, my post-grad year, which is like a, it's over a full year from when that phone conversation occurred. But, you know, I was on a good, we had a good season. My senior year, I played with a guy named Blake step who played at Gonzaga. That was our high school coach's son. We had a good team, so we, we won a lot of games. We were really good. And then, you know, when they came up to watch me play in the fall at New Hampton, I played well that day as well. And and that summer I had played on the team. They called it Team Indiana back then, but it was a traveling team that uh, Tim Knight ran where, you know, the incoming freshman other than himself. So Coverdale was going into his true freshman year. Newton was going into his true freshman year. And Leach was going into his true freshman year. I traveled around with those guys all summer and lived in Bloomington. So I, I knew the team pretty well by then. I'd been there all summer. Um, give us a little, so, oh, sorry. G give us a little glimpse of, cause we've heard about New Hampton, you know, because of Cove and you and 
other players who've gone through there. What's life like there? Is it is it eat, sleep, breathe basketball? What what what's the day to day? New Hampshire is actually a very different than what a lot of people nowadays think about these prep school basketball factory type places. You know, it's a New Hampton's a really good school first and foremost. Um, you know, there was there was tons of high level students just going to normal universities there. It wasn't just the basketball team. Um, you know, I was fortunate when I went there. Some of my best friends I have to this day, you know, my old boss at UNCG was my teammate at New Hampton. Ah, got it. Uh, you know, Wes Miller, he was a younger guy on that team. Uh, I'm super close with at least 10 or 11 guys I went to school with up there. There was, an, there was a guy named Mark Tilton who coached Pat Knight and Steve Hart up there that he was no longer the coach, but he worked me out every day. Uh, he was kind of a mentor to me. And so, you know, the basketball is really high level. Back then, there weren't as many prep schools. So, I mean, I could be off by a couple of guys, but I feel like of our 13 guys on the team I was on, 12 went on to play Division One. Wow. Uh, you, you know, and there, but there was lots of schools. Like, you know, Maine Central Institute at that time was a power. You know, one of my teammates from New Hampton was Bernard Robinson who went to Michigan and played in the NBA. So it was really high level basketball. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a shock to my system because uh, – you know, I'd been I'd gone to a public high school in Eugene, Oregon. That was an open campus with basically no rules. Not that I was doing anything crazy, but you know, I was just kind of used to being self sufficient, doing my own thing. Then you go up to a boarding school in New Hampshire, uh, where you've got to be lights out at nine thirty. You got Saturday school, uh, so it was really regimented, but it was really good for me. I thought I got a lot better up there, and some of my best friends, you know, uh, for life are from New Hampton. And, and even though I, you know, I was a limited player here on the court. I think one of the main reasons I was able to survive and contribute was because when I got to IU, although I was, I mean, I was getting my ass kicked in practice, I had been guarding Bernard Robinson every day who ended up playing the NBA. So I wasn't as shell-shocked by the level of competition. You know, Karam Butler, who played in the NBA, was in that league at the same wow. year. So I'd played against a lot of really good players after that year of prep before I came here. And I also think that, you know, I was more mature than the average college freshman because although you're not totally living on your own, I was, you know, 4,000 miles or 3,000 miles away from home and became pretty self-sufficient that year. Before I ask you about the new, the new Hampton school year, because I do have a, a question about that, I want to go back to something we like to ask every player who accomplished this great feat of every uh, player who can do this, which is when was the first time you dunked the basketball? Do you remember it? The first time, not necessarily in a game, just the first time you rose up and threw one down. Yeah, it was in that summer uh, when I was from eighth grade going into my freshman year when I grew to like six, three and a half. Uh, I was able to dunk, you know, just messing around in a layup line. And then I remember uh, it's weird. My high school did an exchange with this Russian junior national team. Uh, and they, they couldn't actually win any games versus high school teams. So they kind of put together like a – eighth grade ninth grade game between us and we were supposed to kind of be the rum dums that they were going to beat and finally get a win but Blake Stepp and I were on that team so the game actually ended up being really close but all those Russian guys that were 16 and under were dunking in warm-ups and I was like yeah, I can do that so <laughs> then I started doing it and I actually dunked in the game then so wow I mean as anybody that saw me play knows it's not like I was a graceful dunker let's call it what it is <laughs> hey, man, that's just if a product you to dunk- be in six nine you know 
but it's, but we could sneak one over the rim. So let, so, let me tell you something, Mike. There's no, thing of beauty. It doesn't matter. It's like being pregnant. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You're just either pregnant or not. You can either dunk or you can't. It doesn't matter what it looks like. And for the rest of us, we can't. So anybody who can is at an elevated status. Well, with me, it was just all about height and reach. There was not much elevation. <laughs> so I want to ask about New Hampton because here you are. The dream school is Indiana. Bob Knight is a legend. You get to go play for him. You think that, obviously, you are going to go play for him. You're busting your ass at New Hampton. You're thousands of miles away. And in the year that you were at New Hampton, things start to go south for Indiana University basketball at the end of that year when the tape comes out with Neil Reed and all that controversy is happening right at the NCAA tournament time, which is also coinciding with the end of your school year at New Hampton, I would imagine. Yeah, that was a ten- that was a tense time. Um, you know, obviously, I watched as many games as I could. Uh, they were having a really good season, especially early on in that season. AJ Guyton was a senior, um, so watched the team really close. Obviously, like you said, that tape came out right before the NCAA tournament. Uh, you know, Pat Knight was great in that whole thing. Uh, my dad and him had a really good relationship, so that was you know before they came out with the whatever they called it, zero tolerance or right. whatever the term they used was. And so it was literally – the thing that was good about New Hampton was I played pretty well up there that year. So Pat was in the loop on all of it. And he was just telling my dad, hey, if my dad's not the coach, like, you know, we'll make sure your son finds a good school. And I, I actually had a bunch more options after that in case, you know, I was under the assumption that coach was going to come back and coach that team. So it was a tense time. But my dad and Pat and I were having really open dialogue about it. You know, obviously it was still my dream school. I wanted to come. Uh, now, obviously, if they would have fired coach in the spring versus what ended up happening, you know, I do think there's a chance I would have, you know, at least looked at some other options. Sure. Uh, but, but you know, it was tense, but everybody was on the up and up, and, and I felt like I was in a good place because I had a good support system with my family. Pat was really direct with my father and honest, and, and the people at New Hampton, you know, they're really well-versed in placing guys at, you know, high-level programs. So it wasn't like if things went south, I didn't have an option. Well, you you did make the the trek, the move to Bloomington while this was all still up in the air, uh, but then but then it starts to go down. So can you just kind of talk us through, you know, how long you'd been there, what you were doing uh, when the news broke, and how you responded to it, and the rest of the team did? Yeah, you know, it was kind of surreal. You know, we're just getting going in our in our. We, I'd been there all summer. I, I did that team Indiana thing again, so I'd been there all summer lifting and playing pickup, and uh, you know, we were just getting started in fall workouts. You know, at that time it was different. You couldn't do full team workouts like you can now. It was conditioning and four man workouts. You know, and so it was a couple weeks into that, and you know, the incident occurred where there was some doubt about what was going to happen with coach, and you know, I was the I was the youngest guy on the team or, you know, one of the freshmen. And let's be honest, I was the least highly padded recruit. So you know, I was just kind of along for the ride of everything that was going on. But, you know, once that uh, incident occurred or whatever you want to call it, things moved quickly. You know, it was like I remember they brought us in halftime of the football game. Uh, I think that incident occurred on a Thursday or Friday. And then, you know, by that Sunday's when they had the press conference where, where coach was fired. So, uh, that was a really surreal deal. Uh, you know, obviously, there was a little period there where we didn't have a head coach. But the thing that I think helped that group move forward was is that that group of guys was really tight. 
So, you know, obviously we were unbelievably disappointed about what happened with Coach, uh, but we did have some comfort level with Coach Trelor and Coach Davis. And, and so, you know, we just moved on. And obviously since the school year had started, it didn't make sense for any of us to do anything but band together and make the most of the season, you know. Sure. So you did have a little bit of time where Coach Knight was your coach and in the four-man workouts, maybe some conditioning stuff. What was it like? What do you remember from that period of time where you got to be a player for your coach, Coach Knight? Well, I'll never forget the first four-man workout I did at that point, which is comical if anybody saw me play <laughs> there. You know, they talked about me being able to do some stuff on the perimeter. So we did this drill. It was a full-court zigzag drill to half-court where then you'd pass it to a coach and you'd play one-on-one. Well, I was going against Moy and Coverdale the whole time, and we were all dying by the end of it. But I literally remember, like, calling my dad for that workout and being like, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. Like, like, we were all dying. got my ass kicked. You know, it was hard. But uh, I think one of the best things that Coach Knight did – You know, I was a GA for him as well. So I think my perspective from my time as a GA, you know, I actually had an even more clear perspective of what it was like being coached by him uh, is that one of the best things coach did was when he walked into a room or a gym, he raised everybody's level, whether it was focus, whether it was intensity. So just like when he walked in there and he was running that workout, it wasn't like you weren't going to go as hard as you could possibly go for every second you're out there. Mm. And, and so, yeah, it, it was great. You know, I, w- I was looking forward to playing for him and learning from him. Uh, and then obviously I had the opportunity to do that uh, when I was a grad assistant at Texas Tech. So as they go ahead and, and we've talked through it with some other folks, the, the process of how it became head coach Mike Davis. But I kind of wanted to talk to you about the other guys on the team, especially the bigs that you had to go up against and, and you know, learn from. You had, you had Jared Jeffries, you had George Leach, you have Kirk Haston, you have Jeff Newton, you know, some all-time great. Jared Odell. Jared yeah. Odell, yeah, can't forget uh, um, the Oak Hill boy. So, yeah. I mean, just how much better did you get by being on the court with those guys, with learning from them, going head-to-head with them? That had to be the yeah. best education. Yeah, I mean, you know, my freshman year, I guarded the Big Ten MVP every day. That was Kirk Hastings. You wow. know? So, uh, I mean, I can remember days he had that he had that cream skyhook. I haven't really seen a college player have it since. So, I mean, there was days when he had that thing going. Like you could play perfect defense, and he used to he used to just kick my ass. <laughs> uh, I mean, he did everybody, especially on offense that year. So, you know, I guarded him a lot and Jared my freshman year, uh, and then you know the next year I guarded Jared Jeffries you know, almost every day. And so it was a really good group of bigs. Um, I think I got a lot better. You know, I got hurt uh, my second year, the year right. that we went to the championship game. I hurt my ankle really badly on Halloween day. So, you know, from that, that was disappointing. But, yeah, especially my first two years, I mean, the level of competition and practice was – it was really high. I mean, and I used to get my I, – I suffered from lack of lift, as we've already discussed. But, you know <laughs> – You've got to understand when you're trying to get shots up around the basket and you're going against Jared Jeffries, Jeff Newton, and George Leach every day. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, like they were volleyball and everything. Uh, but, but yeah, you, you learn to play against, you know, the best of the best in the Big Ten. And I thought, you know, we had one of the better front courts in the, in the country, especially early on in my career. So it was great. Now, you talked about how this group was a tight group. And it's a special yeah. group. And it's a group 
that is remembered so fondly by the fan base. I mean, just an all-time favorite team because of the way they played. But part of that is also, you had some absolute lunatic personalities on that team. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to name some guys, and I want you to just tell me. And by the way, by the way, I know you have to be prim and proper because you're the assistant coach now. I get it. But just know, when Dane Fife came on this, he gave your ass a hard time. So (laughs) don't feel like you need to hold back when I name some of these guys. I just want you to give me your, like, first impression when you met these guys and started to get to know them. Let's start with let's start with some of your your fresh incoming freshmen uh with you so let's start with jared jeffries what was jared like jared was always really level-headed one of the smartest players i ever played with his personality he was just like a i remember thinking that he was kind of just like a goofy freshman but when it came time to play man he got serious really quick and a lot of people don't realize he struggled a little bit early in his freshman year. I mean, there's a lot that had gone on that fall. Mm-hmm. But talk about a guy that could adjust quickly. And Jared's still a really good friend to this day. Um, you know, Jared, Jared was really goofy off the court. We had a great time. He was really, really uh, direct. And, and the thing I remember about Jared was on the court is I, I don't think I ever played with a smarter defensive player than Jared. Like I can just remember – him in half times, literally like making adjustments for the coaching staff on the fly, like him being like, no, we're doing this. Wow. Uh, and see, part, part of why we got really close was that Team Indiana deal. We'd drive around the state all summer together. So it was like we were working camps together and playing these games. And so, you know, we just got th- – this is kind of – cell phones were out, but it wasn't like we were on our cell phones all the time. We are just in long car rides together, so right. we got to know each other. And, you know, Jared was great too because he was from Bloomington, so – he kind of already knew the lay of the land in Bloomington, and he'd look out for us and, and, and you know, set us up in Bloomington. A.J. Moye. <laughs> <laughs> no, A.J.'s the best, you know. I mean, A.J. has a lot of personality, as we all know. You know, yeah. we call him the fish once we got to know him. My One of my memories of A.J. Moye was I was sitting in my apartment with a ball. Like, I don't know how I was holding it. He's like, hey, hold still. I'm going to draw this. And he like, wanted to get a tattoo of it after that. <laughs> I was like, well, that's different. You know? uh, but, but, but AJ's a great guy, man. AJ was a, a great competitor. You always knew when the game was on the line. Like, he, he, was, he was fearless. You know, I mean, like, you could say whatever you wanted. He was a fearless guy. He was a good guy. Really intelligent. Like, I think sometimes with AJ, he could be quirky, but he was a really intelligent guy that, Especially on the court, he knew what it what it took to you know get a win. Uh, Kyle Hornsby, you mentioned he was your host on the on the official visit, but what was Hornsby oh, the doc- like? The doctor, the doctor. <laughs> uh, well, my going into my freshman year, they literally were like just work. At, the rules were different back then, so I literally just followed him around like a puppy dog. When he worked out, I worked out. Well, Kyle's a machine. The guy could work out like four hours a day, so. I was almost dying trying to keep up with him, but he's just, just what you see with him, man. The most genuine best guy ever. Like he's like one of your teammates. You'd let marry your sister. If you had one, I don't have a sister, but you know what I mean? Like he's just that good of a guy. It's uh, gotta... I remember my first team meeting, he had had a quad injury that calcified and coach Knight was not happy. We won't get into the details of that meeting, but he got <laughs> ripped. And I remember thinking to myself, like, well, Kyle Hornsby's getting ripped. I'm in deep trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
but no, Kyle, Kyle has been a friend since, you know, Kyle, actually, I even met Kyle on my unofficial visit. So no, we're, we're, we're close friends. His wife, Whitney went to school with us. She played on the soccer team, just a genuine, great guy, hard worker, you know, like he, he had to do extra work to get into medical school. Like he, I don't think he knew he was going to be a doctor right away. So the guy is our leading scorer in the national championship game, comes back, plays another year, could have gone and played overseas. You know, I'm finishing up playing and, Kyle's taking like undergrad prereqs to make sure he gets in med school. Like that's the type of duty was like, he was just like, whatever it takes, lunch pail work. I mean the best. Uh, it must be great having him there in town, you know, just having some of your, your guys there when you move back. Yeah, no, it's been great. You know, I, we don't get together as much as we should. Cause obviously he's unbelievably busy with as a cardiologist and I'm unbelievably busy as well, but we get together and, you know, he'll be a lifelong friend. All right. So you talked about somebody, uh, Kyle's the kind of guy that if you had a sister, you'd be happy for him to marry your sister. Would you say the same about Dane Fife? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> what I remember about Fife was, you know, he, he was OCD out of his mind. The guy would bite his fingernails to like till they were bleeding before every game. He'd use, he'd have to use the bathroom like seven times before, but the ultimate competitor, the thing, all jokes aside, the thing I always remember about Dane was he never accepted anybody on the team not going all out and his definition all out. And, you know, your definition is maybe an underclass and those were two different things. And he was usually right. He was the ultimate competitor. Uh, you know, once again, another guy that's a good friend, but you know, Dane, Dane's out of his mind, you know, and he had, see, he's, he's the, <laughs> why I got the nickname because he would always call me that in a condescending way. So I just started calling him that back. You know? <laughs> so, so wait, you both call each other boss? Yeah. Well, he would just, you know, he'd just say, Hey boss, whatever. So then I just, I'd never, I just called him that nickname back and then it just stuck. Cause he also, <laughs> well, Mike, everyone's calls everybody boss. I was like, no, I don't, you know, my man here does. And I just keep calling him back. So, uh, Tom Coverdale. Uh, an all timer, you know, that's one of my best friends. Uh, he was my roommate for a year, you know, uh, there's lots of things that can't be discussed on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> well, no, but we can discuss but, them. That's up to you. No, we won't. No, but all jokes aside, an, an, another guy that uh, ultimate competitor, gamer, unbelievably smart basketball player. I think he had a photographic memory for plays because I can remember when I was a coach and he was a coach for a while afterwards. And he'd be like, remember when we ran this? And I'd be like, no. And he could literally just like, you know, he, I think he had a photographic memory for, for basketball. Um, great guy. Another guy that I'm still in contact with to this day. One of my best friends in the world. The best. Uh, George Leach. George, George and I were really similar in that uh, we both struggled a little bit early on. George is the nicest guy ever, you know, uh, unbelievably talented you know, most genuine guy. I think in the way the modern game is played that George would have played in the modern NBA. Like he's the perfect like role finisher, shot blocker. Back then we just didn't play that way. You know, we, we threw it inside and pounded it and posted it. Talented guy, great guy. Uh, you know, someone that I got together with him a lot when I was at UNCG because he's got the Uwe barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the stuff's good, by the way. And then whenever I'd be down there recruiting in Charlotte, 
either on the front end or the back end of a game, I'd always text him like, Hey, where, where, where's your truck set up today? So if it worked out, you know, we'd end up linking up a couple times a year, just doing that. When we had um, Mike Davis on the podcast, Mike said he really regretted as he looks back, he regrets how he used George. He said he really, he said he wasn't, he did not coach him well. And he said exactly kind of what you just said was he wishes he would have put him in more pick and rolls, alley-oops, you know, used his athleticism more. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say, it's easy to say that now, but the reality is that's not how the game was played back then right. over most of college basketball. So, yeah, I mean, it's nobody's fault. That's just, it's just, that's not how the college game was played per se back then. And he fits the modern style. He was an unbelievable shot blocker. He could really run, uh, you know, he had some gifts, and he had a long overseas career that was successful as yes, well. Yes, he did, along with his good friend. And the last one, I'll, I'll do this little game. <laughs> Give us something on Newt. Newt, you know, it was it was hard to get him to say much, but when Newt did say something, you know, it meant something. Another guy that was an unbelievably smart player. Uh, because Newt was so quiet, people didn't realize how smart he was on the court, man. He was, he was always processing – uh, you know, obviously I didn't play a lot, but I can remember Newt's senior year, there were some games where he and I played significant minutes together, and you just realized how smart he was. Uh, good guy. You know, he, him and George are both down there working in Charlotte, so another guy I stayed in really good touch with. Newt was a guy that later on his career, like his junior and senior year, when he shot a mid-range jumper, I just assumed it was going in. I mean, he just, he seemed so smooth out there, never got flustered. It just, he, his game, it was just another guy who I feel like more fits what the modern game is. I feel like if Newton played today, he would have developed a three-point shot. Yeah, you know, I think Newt's another guy that was a fringe uh, NBA player. Newt was always so hard for me to play against because I lacked skill, but I was physical. So I always needed to have contact so that I could get my shot shot off against guys like him and he would just always make sure that I could never get my body on him and then you know his 7-3 wingspan he'd come out of nowhere and block it um but really smart he was always he was always ahead on what was going to occur next and, and like you say really really skilled uh I mean obviously he was close to playing in the NBA couldn't quite but unbelievable college player you know his numbers were tired the club he played for in Japan so yeah. he won a bunch of championships over there unbelievable player so as Eric mentioned, we, we had the pleasure of speaking with Coach Davis. Your coach now is Coach Davis, and you'd gotten a glimpse into the universe of being coached by Bobby Knight, but what's it like now? You've got a new coach, young coach, um, taking uh, the, the, the reins of the program, and what was it like to see him figure that out sort of on the fly unexpectedly, and, and what what was the vibe when he was running practices and, and how he approached the game and, and you guys as now his players? Yeah, you know, Coach Davis was thrown into a really tough situation. I don't think, you know, whoever took over for Coach Knight, I don't think he was going to please please the overall fan base. But this is what I'll say about Coach Davis. He was an unbelievable offensive coach, and he ran really good practices. Uh, he knew how to get his blessed players shots, uh, he treated me really well interpersonally. You know, look, now that I'm on the other side of this, I mean, I accept my limitations as a player. And there's some coaches that would have made me transfer or run me off, especially after I got hurt. And it was obvious that I wasn't going to be a significant contributor uh, in the games. Um, he was a really good coach. 
he he knew how to get his best player shots. Like I said, he he demanded a lot of us defensively, uh, as did John Trelor. And I thought he did a, a, a really good job, uh, you know, coaching the team and giving us a chance, preparing us to win. Uh, Trelor was a big part of that as well, you know. And coach and I didn't uh, speak a ton uh, once I left here and went to be a GA at Texas Tech is just how, how things worked out. But then I got to reconnect with him because he was the head coach of UAB when I was an assistant at Rice. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, everywhere he's been, has gone to the NCAA tournament, everywhere he's been's won. Uh, you know, somebody that treated me really well. I thought he did a good job under tough circumstances. It, it makes me wonder, you were clearly aware of, especially after the injury what level of contributions you were going to be making going forward as a player. When did the idea of jumping to coach coach Roberts start to, to seed in your mind? Um, my senior year here playing, uh, I was a fifth year guy because I, you know, I'd had a medical red shirt the one year. Um, it started to kind of be in my back of my mind. The reality was I was, I'd already started my master's in sports administration here. I was thinking about going to law school um, I wasn't sure I wanted to coach. Um, then I obviously ended up taking that GA spot at Texas Tech. And the truth is my initial thought was just like, hey, how do I get free grad school, right? Like everybody, like, hey, <laughs> how are we going to make this work? But I, I always thought I had a pretty good eye for the game. I always thought that, uh, you know, it's something that I, I like paying attention to the details of the game and helping my teammates with things like that. And after a couple of weeks of being a GA down at Texas Tech, I was like, hey, I want to try to do this. You know, I, I made a choice to either take a – take a you know, get in a prolonged master's program down there or just get my master's as soon as possible so that I could really chase coaching. You know, obviously I chose to get my master's as quick as I could just so I could try to coach. So I, 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 I was kind of in my mind starting my senior year and then – as I was, like I said, not even maybe a month into being a GA, I was like, you know, I want to. This is what I want to try to do. And my my whole thought process on it was, is like, well, if it doesn't work out, I got a free master's degree out of it. Like, how many other people do that? So, yeah. uh, it, it was a great deal all around. Before we leave your playing career, which which you 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 are you are so humble about, and we get it. You didn't put up the big stats. You weren't the star player, but you played for Indiana University, five year player. That is a remarkable achievement. So don't sell yourself short on that. Five, five more years than me and Eric and 99.999% yeah. of the fan base. Yeah, exactly. So, but I do want to ask you, I know you got hurt for that 0102 year, but you're clearly a part of the team at that point. You've established relationships and obviously going through what everyone went through in the fall of 2000 when Coach Knight was let go, that bonds people together going through something like that. You're, it's almost like being in war. Oh. So, which I'm sure has led to why that group is so tight to this day. But what was it like making that final four run with that group of guys in 0102? It was unbelievable. I mean, I'll be frank, and I've had this conversation with teams. Personally, that was an unbelievably frustrating year because I thought I was playing the best I'd ever played in the fall of that year before I got hurt. So, personally, I'm not going to lie, I was in the dumps a lot of that year. But sure. once we started going on that run, I mean – you knew it was kind of a once in a lifetime thing. It'd been a while since uh, you know they'd been on a deep tournament run like that. So I mean, it was a whirlwind, but you still have vivid memories of it. The longer you get removed from it, you know, I don't remember that many specific things about the games. I just remember more of 
that group and the, the connection and bond we had. And, and the thing I remember about that team was we scored. We were going to be in the game because we were an unbelievable defensive team. Like, I'm not looking at it, but I, I feel like at that time, you know, we had a Big Ten record for field goal percentage of defense for the year. I feel like teams shot like 39% for the year. Or something. Wow. So, like, if we scored at all, we were going to be there. And we were really tough. We were really connected. Uh, you know, obviously, we had Jared, who was our guy. I mean, there was a lot of other good players. Let's call it what it was. Jared was the pro, and the rest of the guys knew their job, and they did it well. And we were we were hard to beat, um, and, and we just kind of caught fire at the right time. You know, I remember we we, ha- we we started out seven and six that year. That's what a lot of people don't realize. Um, and so it wasn't like it was all smooth sailing, but we kind of felt like by the middle of February, no matter what happened, there wasn't a team in the country on that day we couldn't beat if we played well. Uh, you know, obviously that was capped off by that Duke win. That's, yeah. We know how talented that team was, and that's probably let's let's call it what it is. We play that team a hundred times, we don't beat them many, but it was one of those days, and it's college basketball with the you know forty minute game and a thirty five second shot clock back then. Uh, that was just kind of a product of what I, I was talking about before. Is that team on a given day can beat anybody? So I just wanted to you you got to go to the final four as an Indiana Hoosier what is the locker room like when you guys know you've punched that ticket? What's the, the trip home like? What's Bloomington like for those magical few days leading up to the trip to the Final Four? I'll never forget when we uh, beat Kent State to go to the Final Four. When we when we came back from Lexington, the game was in Lexington. Just, you know, there was thousands of people out there. I'll never forget that. Um then obviously, you know, the reality is we were the lowest seeded team in the tournament. Everybody thought that Oklahoma was going to pound us in the first round or, or the, you know, the first game of the final four. So that group kind of had a chip anyway, but we had a huge chip for that Oklahoma game. We we're able to win that. And then obviously, you know, the reality is that the Maryland game is, you know, I think they had four pros and we had one. So we, we'd kind of gotten been fortunate to overcome one team like that in Duke, but, you know, the better team won. So, Mike, when I think back on my basketball career, which ended in high school, I can still remember certain plays from third grade that are like my highlights of my career. You played for Indiana for four years, injured for one. There has to be one moment, uh, not, not counting the Final Four run that your teammates went on here, but there has to be one moment that when you think back about your IU career sticks out in your head. Yeah, th- there's three games. Yeah, there's three games that stick out in my mind. Uh, my red shirt sophomore year, we played Iowa at home. I came off the bench and, and played well. I thought I was a big part of us being able to win that game against a good Iowa team. Uh, you know, I, I thought I played a really good game uh, against uh, my senior year. We played at UConn. It was actually the day it was like a space shuttle crash, so the game was never on TV. CBS. But I thought I played really, really well in that game my senior year. Uh, That was a big game. And then in the Big Ten tournament, my red shirt junior year, that was a disappointing year. But it was a game where I got to play a bunch in the Big Ten tournament and had a great game. And those were games that, you know, I thought, although overall, obviously on the court itself, my career was disappointing. But those were three games that stood out that, you know, I thought, you know, it was a big contributor to us, you know, winning the game. So you grew up an Indiana fan. You got to go to Indiana to be a player. After five years of IU, the biggest question we can ask you is, who do you hate more, Kentucky or Purdue? 
Um, can I say both? Yes, yes that's the correct answer. That's the correct answer. <laughs> no, uh, no. I mean, we, we we respect Purdue, but obviously, oh, the Rivalry, stop it. Where stop where I where I where I grew up, the Kentucky deal was like bitter, you know. And I mean, I'll be honest, I, I never beat Kentucky as a player, so uh, that that was brutal. Uh, we had we, you know that we had the infamous game where we were ranked in the top ten and. Coach, coach stopped. Bracey got hit on the head on the drive, and coach rushed the court. We had a couple times we should have. We never beat them. You know the the, the Kentucky fans are uh, they're animated. They're the worst. They're the they're worst. the worst. So let's circle back to your time at Texas Tech, and and now you are on the other side of it, albeit as a graduate assistant. You'd gotten chipped out of your time with Coach Knight as a player. So what in that time with him? What are some of the uh, the moments, the lessons that stick out that you really took with you for the rest of your coaching career? The the biggest thing that um, and most guys that worked under coach I think will say a similar thing was, you know, I'd just been a player, and, and by the end I was a pretty observant player, and, and I I was I think looking at it from a different lens than maybe the average player because I've been there five years, and I knew maybe when the coach, but when I really got to be behind the scenes and coach Knight, when you're a GA for him, I mean you get to see everything. Like he doesn't hide it. He lets you sit in on the meetings. He lets you take notes. I mean, you get to see it. And the thing that I always take with me about coach Knight when I worked under him was his level of preparation and thought for planning, you name it was elite. Like there's so many things that people from the outside don't know. Like basically what the concept of athletic academic advising is like that's coach Knight had a lot to do with that. You know, he was a guy when you worked for him, I mean, he brought me in, he sat me down. He says, Mike, I brought you here to do this. You're going to be responsible for making sure these 13 guys, I just finished playing, so I was in good shape. Uh, you know, these 13 guys work out every day. He showed me the workouts he wanted me to do. Uh, you knew exactly what it was your role was on his staff. So I mean, that all goes back to preparation, right? Like he, he was really good at figuring out what everyone's role was. He was really good at um, – you know, making complicated concepts seem simple. I always thought when it was in game planning, there'd be a lot of details to it, but he would always have a couple key bullet points like, hey, if we do these two or three things, we're going to win the game. And there was genius in that. Um, you know, and, and he, and by, that was a disappointing year. They were coming off of a Sweet 16 run uh, the year before I became a GA, and we had high expectations. And we didn't meet him. So by the middle of January, there were some rough days, if you know what I mean. We yeah. weren't playing well. Um, and so, but even through that, just the level of preparation. And like I said before, the other thing about Coach that people overlook is, yes, he's a genius. I think he's one of the coaches. That I don't think there's a lot of them that I think he can literally see all 10 players on the court at the same time. And mm. the reality is there's not many guys, I think, that see the game that way that well. Uh, and, and so I think that was one of his great things, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the lessons I learned were invaluable. Is that I, something you can, you can get better at, like being around him and seeing how he watches the game? Maybe you don't yeah. have the, well, the, the born I, I genius. Mean, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not even claiming to ever be in the same sentence as that man when it comes to basketball. But the one thing when you're around him a lot, that you learn pretty quickly when you're a J form. And I think, uh, most coaches kind of do this without knowing it. 
But if you start listening to them talk about what they see, like when the average fan watches the game, they watch the ball primarily. Yeah. Uh, you know, most really good coaches, yeah, obviously they're aware of what the ball is doing because that dictates what the other people are doing. But they're actually really watching more what's going on off the ball. Uh, that's how you get, you know. So I think uh, that I think that was coach's biggest thing is I could just remember, you know, I'm a GA, so I'm not saying two words. I'm just taking notes and listening. If I'm asked something, I answer. But I remember sitting in meetings after games and just taking notes and him saying, like, remember when the score was, you know, 62-61, this time this happened. I'm like, no way he remembers all that. Like, I would go back and watch the tape, and he was spot on. You know, like wow. his memory for what had occurred was unbelievable. Now, we all know that Coach Knight has this just infamous intensity, and the, th- the stuff that gets covered in the media, you know, historically has been the blow-ups. But the people that played for him or coached for him uh, know that there's a whole other side of Coach Knight. And part of that side is that he's hilarious. He is a oh. really funny human. Is there any story you can tell us in your time of being a grad assistant for him that sticks out in your mind that still makes you laugh to this day? Oh, boy, there's a lot, but... One of the more hilarious stories is uh, he sent me to go get gas for his car. He gives me the credit card. And he tells me that it's whatever gas station. I think it's whatever gas station he should get his gas from in Bloomington. Well, that doesn't exist in Lubbock. So he told me the wrong one. So I drive down this road. And I'm, and I'm, he's basically like, you know, just take a left on the street. It'll be down there a little ways. And so I'm driving for like 10 minutes. I don't see this gas station. So I call Marianne, uh, you know, in the basketball. Yeah. So I'm like, Marianne, he told me to go. I, I, am I losing my mind? Am I on the wrong street? He's like, no, he doesn't get his gas, you know, here. He gets his gas like. So I drive back the other direction about 10 minutes because I've gone too far. I fill up the car. I take it back. Now, obviously, he's thinking to himself, like, why is this guy being gone 40 minutes for something that could take seven? <laughs> and he's not in the best mood that day. And and so, you know, he the reality is he doesn't want to hear an explanation of, like, why it's taking so long. Let's call it what it is. And he's like, you know, why did that take so I was like, my fault, coach. And then he, he just – I won't get into all the adjectives, but he starts going in on me about, you know, why why that didn't occur and the reality is just that he told me the wrong gas station, but I didn't want to tell him, like, uh, Coach, you told me the wrong gas station. <laughs> <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, we could spend a ton of time on your assistant coaching career, but we want to get to, obviously, you coming back home. Uh, you, you make your bones as an assistant coach, uh, first with Ben Braun at Rice. Uh, uh, Cal first. Oh, I sorry, Cal, Cal with Ben at Cal. Correct. Cal, I was a Ben at both Cal and Rice, correct. Got it. So you go to Rice, then you get your uh, you move over with your old teammate, which I didn't realize until today, at UNCG. Um, and and you, you set up shop there, and you do extremely well there. And at the same time, Archie Miller takes the job at Indiana in 2017 and has a staff in place, and that staff is there for the first two years. And then decides to make a change at the end of that second year when we had two years, which I think were, you know, tough years for Indiana as he was trying to install his system. I have to tell you, Mike, and I don't know if you felt this at all because you were doing your own thing and really busy at UNCG. But that assistant coaching search, I followed Indiana basketball for a long time. I don't ever remember so much focus being on 
who are we going to get for that assistant coaching job? It was a big, big deal. When did you first hear that there was an opportunity to potentially land back at Indiana, and how did that come to you? Um, well, you know, I didn't know Coach Miller really well uh, when he got the job in Indiana, but we knew each other a little bit. He had been an assistant at Arizona State when I was an assistant at Cal. Uh, I believe he was an assistant at Ohio State, actually, when we played them uh, in the NIT at Cal. We actually got fired after we lost that game. It's another story. but uh, uh, And so we were aware of each other, obviously. And then, uh, you know, Joe Pasternak, who actually helped me get the job um, at Cal, who's an old IU manager, had worked for, um, you know, Coach Miller's brother at Arizona. Uh, and so, you know, once that opening I saw was available, I'd come back to the team reunion uh, when coach first got the job in that summer. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a pushy guy. Like I wasn't beating coaches doors down or whatever. You know, I'll, I'll be honest. I was just trying to win games at UNCG and stay alive in the profession. But when I saw it opened up, you know, I, I, uh, reached out to Arch via text and we started kind of talking. And then from there we, we talked, uh, you know, sporadically sometimes more than others over, you know, a pretty extended period. And uh, the more we talked, it just seemed that, you know, maybe this might be a possibility. I mean, obviously, uh, this was a dream opportunity for me. So, uh, I mean, he knew pretty quickly that if he offered it to me, I'd crawl there. Uh, and so, so you know, it, but, I, but I did also think that, you know, I, I, I'm young, but I've, I've been a part of a lot of different staffs and uh, been a lot of different places. So, um, you know, I just let him know that how, how much I would looking for the opportunity. And we talked about some things that – you know, hopefully I could fit in with the, the other staff that's obviously really experienced and really good and, and it'll help us win, you know. Uh, so was thrilled about the opportunity. And and what were the specifics in the conversation leading up to him offering you the position or, or once you accepted the position that he said, look, Mike, I think this is where you can really help us. I'd like you to do X, Y, and Z. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, we just we just talked about one of the things we talked about more than specifically what my role is on the staff was, is as we talked more, I think I was able to convey to him that I understood some things that I think are unique to Indiana university as a player that I thought I could help mentor the kids with, you know, one being, I think at IU, it's one of the greatest basketball programs in the country, obviously. Number one. You know how I feel about it is that when you're playing well, you're never as good as everybody from the outside is telling you you are. When you're, when you're playing poorly or losing, you're never as bad. And I remember when I was, this is pre-social media, mainly when I played here, just like how that can eat you up, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't just stay focused on the task, and I think that's part of why some of the teams I was on early were finally over to give the hump is we just were able to tune that out. So, you know, helping mentor those guys with that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, even though I haven't been in the Midwest for a long time, you know, obviously we talked about some things that need to be brought to the table in recruiting, different connections. And then we just talked ball in general, you know, and, and uh, so it's obvious talking to coach Miller, how sharp he is with basketball and, and listen to those pieces. And then, you know, the other piece is, I think whenever you come into a new staff, you know, your n number one job coming in, especially as an assistant coach is, you know, figuring out, you know, how you're going to fit in with the staff that's already there. You're not, I mean, you know, it, it's, I think with a basketball staff, 
there's no one person that's a superstar other than maybe the head coach. And you've got to figure out how to fit in. And I think I was able to convey to him that uh, I've had a lot of different roles. I basically had every role other than basketball operations and head coach from GA all the way up through video, through different, you know, spots and assistant coaching tree. So that, you know, I, I was willing to do whatever it could fit in with the staff and hopefully, you know, mentor these kids and, and help us win. You know, obviously I'm a really small part of, of what's going on. And as an assistant, you've got to figure out as you look at the whole staff dynamic, what it is you can bring that might be different than some other guys that's your strength. And so, you know, that's what we've been trying to do since I've got here. One of the things that was written about you when you came to IU was something that Indiana has just not had for a long time, which is some presence in recruiting the international players. And it was written that, that you had some connections in that world that, that you could bring to, to bear at Indiana. What, is that fair? And also, where does that come from in your basketball life? Um, well, the reality of that is that when we were at UNCG, my previous stop, we weren't uh, very successful early on. Uh, North Carolina is a hotbed for high school basketball, but they also have something like 17 Division One schools. So there's a lot of competition for recruiting. Uh, and my boss at the time was just like, hey, you need to go over there and figure this out. Uh, I was fortunate I was able to, you know, Myself and our staff had some success. You know, two of the guys, two of our starters that uh, were able to – that our first NCAA tournament team at UNCG, you know, our starting two guard was Spanish and our starting center was Dutch. So it had something to do with recruiting those guys. And just basically I went over there and started trying to figure it out. And, you know, I, I think in recruiting, like with everything, it's relationships. And, uh, yeah, we're still I'm, – I'm still trying to recruit some kids over there internationally now. The one thing that's a little different is that – the pool of guys that are definitively impactful from overseas in the Big Ten versus the Southern Conference is different. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time over there. Uh, you know, every year for five or so years, I used to go to the FIBA age group championships. And, you know, hopefully one of these times there will be a kid that will come across that will fit and, and can help us in that way. Now, we know Coach Miller stepped into a major rebuilding job at IU what is your take on on where that rebuild process is now and what does it look like and feel like you know obviously on the court when it's in full effect like do you feel like okay next season it's it's gonna kind of be to the point where it's like yes this is what he's been working towards or are we still a couple seasons away yeah you know I don't I don't have a magic ball in terms of answering that question like where exactly it's at but I think that if you look every year, I think there's been progress made. And you know, obviously this last season had some ups and downs, but I thought it ended on a strong note. I thought we were playing really well, uh, playing the right way. And I think that, you know, as long as we keep trending in the right direction, uh, you know, for, forget necessarily the big picture, but on a day-to-day -day basis, we just keep, you know, dream big but work small and, and keep, you know, imposing – what it is our players' core beliefs are in our culture and our, our level of work ethic, the results will take care of itself. So I think we continue to make progress. Obviously, we've got a team returning with a lot of experience, so our, our hopes are high for this year. So to answer that question about like a specific time, I mean, I don't really know that. I just think we're trying to always get better, always trying to recruit the right kids that fit in with our system uh, and fit in with us culturally. And if, and if we keep improving and working 
the right way every day, the results will take care of themselves. Yeah, I think the the easy answer in my mind is it's once he's got four-year players, guys he's he's recruited and have been there for several years and can help bring the new guys in. But we've had the the pleasure to get to know some of the guys who who committed and, and come in and, and met a few back in Bloomington with the current team. And it just seems it's of paramount importance that these are like good dudes. They're good students and like competitive as hell. Are those things you guys talk about when you're out there recruiting, whether it be on the East Coast in Europe? Does does Archie have these these bullet points of like, look, these these are the kind of guys we're looking for? Well, yeah, you know, obviously Archie's uh, Coach Miller's a really competitive guy. And I think that when you're in recruiting, you need to try to recruit guys that are going to fit the personality of the head coach. So, no, have we had like some specific bullet point meeting of like this is exactly what we're looking for? No, obviously the first thing you got to have is talent. You know, you can have all the intangibles, but if you don't have enough talent, it doesn't matter. But I think we've been fortunate in that, like you say, we've got some kids that are some really high-level students, really high-level character, and they're workers and they're basketball players, you know. And so I think it's a group of kids that uh, – you know, our whole whole program that can continue to improve and are about the right things. Now, you talk about Archie being competitive, but I can't imagine there are many more competitive people than Mike Roberts. And you have become a fan favorite coach because of your intensity on the sidelines. You are animated. You are talking. You are gesticulating. Arms are flailing. There are some good gifts out there already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know... Uh, I'm not going to lie when things are going on, I can get into it. Um, you know, obviously as an assistant coach, you got to pick your spots on that, but, uh, there's never any denying that, that, uh, whether it's practice or the game, I get competitive and get into it. And I think that's what it's all about. You know, you gotta, you know, I gotta know your role, but also I think, uh, you can't bring some energy to the situation and, and help, you know, the kids you're coaching have a little fire and want to compete. Um, you know, you're not doing your job. You know, you're, um, return to Indiana coincided with the Archie and Victor Oladipo fantasy camp last year, which I was lucky enough to be at and got to meet. You led, you led that camp in charges, didn't you? I did. Yes. Yes. Thank you yes. for bringing that up. I was Thank worried. You. I was really worried about, you know, an orthopedic surgeon having to see you before that week was over. And luckily for you, you survived that. I did. Luckily. Also, they don't have a doctor for what happened to me. My butthole exploded, and I, they just don't know what to do with that. No comment. No comment. <laughs> so, but, but one of the things that was amazing about that weekend was that was your first time back, right? You had just come back. Your yeah. family hadn't moved back. You hadn't even moved. You, were just, you just grabbed a bag and were there. Yeah. Um, but there was a buzz at the camp for really three things, I mean, honestly. It was to be around Archie and the head coach of Indiana basketball, to see Vic, you know, who had put this thing together and put his name on it, but you returning to Indiana because the fan base was so desperate to have that connection point for these kids playing to someone who knew what it meant to play at Indiana. And here was a guy from Terre Haute who grew up with Indiana as his dream school and came, played for five years for Indiana and returned home. Can you put into words what it feels like to be back in Bloomington and know that you do have the support of this fan base around you. We are so happy that you are there to do what you talked about, mentoring these kids on what it means to play for Indiana. What does that feel like for you, Mike, personally? 
I mean, it, it feels amazing. Like I said, I mean, this is this is a dream opportunity for me. Um, along with that, obviously, you know, you feel a sense of responsibility. I mean, you feel a sense of responsibility in anything in coaching if you're competitive. You know, if I'm coaching a seventh grade team and it's important, you know, I want to make sure that the kids are prepared and you're doing everything you can as a coach. But, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. I feel even more of a, a sense of responsibility to try to make sure you know, with our staff and with our kids, I, I give it my best every day and give our kids the best chance to succeed. Uh, you know, my wife went to school here as well. So, uh, you know, this community is a community that's done a lot for me and my family. And so you know, I just want to help Coach Miller and our staff and, you know, the program win. You know, I mean, we can we can talk about all this stuff we want, but, you know, we, we've got to do everything we can to help these kids understand what what we need to do to try to you know help this team win games. And, and I'm grateful for this opportunity and don't take it lightly is it is it that love of indiana and that sense of responsibility that um gave you the kindness and grace to offer your basement to ward and i to use as our hoosier hysterics headquarters next time we come to bloomington when it was very late at night in the upstairs room at nick's <laughs> um yeah that's probably what it was you know i, I, I think i think I think it's just, uh, you know, I, I'm, who's your hospitality? What can you say? <laughs> That's right? exactly what it is. All right, before we let you go, before we get out of here, you got to give us something else on Dane. Just something stupid that he did. That we can hold over him. Yeah, we need something on Dane. Oh, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> something that you feel okay sharing uh, on the airwaves. No, this, okay, so <laughs> we're practicing. This is my true freshman year. We're in the preseason NIT in New York city. We have a practice on Thanksgiving day. If my, my, I might be off by a day, but basically you play the day before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving days an off day, but you practice and then you play the third, third, fourth place game or the championship game or the preseason IT the next day, which I believe is Friday. Don't quote me on that, but I'm almost positive. Okay. So we, we get, we get drilled and we lose the first game and then we have practice on Thanksgiving day. So we're doing a drill uh, it's a it's a weave drill into a two on one, so it's like a three man weave back into a two on one drill. And Dane Fife and Andre Owens, they could get in arguments slash wrestling matches <laughs> slash who knows. Okay, so we're doing this drill, and I'm the I'm the guy that makes the pass on the two on one drill. I become the back defender playing the two on one. Well, Owens and Fife start I don't know fighting, wrestling, whatever you want to call it. And I, I don't know they're back there because they're not supposed to be. And I step on one of them, and I slightly sprain my ankle. Ooh. And it's, it's, it's been a bad little run anyway. It was our first loss. Uh, we, I think we got pounded by Temple. Don't quote me. It was Temple or Texas. One of them beat us. It wasn't a good day. And so I'm pissed. And I'm only a freshman. He's my roommate. And he's, like, kind of riding me, like, nonstop about, you know, I just need to walk it off. And we start yelling at each other so much in the room. I little, I didn't basically want to fight him. And, uh, we got, you know, it's only like four in the afternoon, and so we're arguing so loud that they call security on us for arguing with roommates. <laughs> but there's lots of stories like that, right? I mean, part yeah. two, Mike just gives us all the Dane, scoop on sorry. Dane. That Dane has that effect on everyone. I mean, I know he got into a fight with Michael Lewis. So he and Cove would go at it. I mean, just Dane has that effect on people. 
he's an instigator, which I mean, that's said that was part of what made him good. Yeah. Um, you know, D- Dane is a good takedown guy. He's actually not a good fighter. You understand? <laughs> yes. Yes. There's a big difference. Now he, <laughs> he would talk like he's a good fighter, but the reality is he's a good takedown guy. He, he won't admit what he's good at, but when he actually gets into it, he does know when he goes to the, to the takedown. Well, coach, we are so excited that you're back in Bloomington it, it means the world to us to have somebody who, who connects the eras, who understands what it means to not just be a player, but be a fan and can help impart that on these guys coming in. Some who know it from the way they've come up, others coming in from out of state. It's, it's so reassuring to know you're there to show them the light and to use your incredibly deep, loud voice to yell at them when it's not quite getting through. <laughs> we all just couldn't be more excited to have you on the sideline, and, and hopefully we'll get back there sooner rather than later as things return to normal and see you guys start to, to pound some opponents. No question. We're excited about the year and, and getting it going. Appreciate you guys having me on. hysterics. I think I might steal a technique that you've developed with Reasonable Rabbi, and at some point, insert the song Big Boss Man by Elvis Presley. You know, maybe it happened right before I said this, or I'm going to cut to it right now. Big Boss Man. I I just love the guy. I am so happy he's the assistant coach at Indiana University and on this staff. His intensity, his love for Indiana, the care that he has in his heart for what it means to be there, the responsibility that he talked about that is like amped up another level. He's a professional, so he felt the responsibility at Rice and at Cal and at UNCG, but you come back home to a special place and it amps it up even more. I I love it. It makes me really happy. Well, and it's so much about connecting the arrows, right? That's That's what we do here at the Hysterics. And I think... Somebody, yes, he got recruited by Coach Knight, had a glimpse of him there in Bloomington, and obviously got more time with him in Texas. But he grew up a part of the Bob Knight era at its apex. And, you know, if we're, if we're really talking about the fracture of the family, it, it was from Bob Knight forward. And everything that happened in between, it's sort of irrelevant now. It's, you know, what, what happened with the fan base from the Knight era, and now we're in the Coach Miller era. And that there is a guy on that staff that has got a foot firmly planted in both eras and can help just bring it all together. And I think we've seen in the last couple of years that a credit to Coach Miller and everybody there at IU at doing a really good job at, at bringing the family back together. And I can't wait that when this team really gets rolling, and I think we're starting to see all signs pointing in the right direction of that's where this is headed, that everybody who's ever been associated with this program will be able to come home and join in the celebration of IU returning back to the pinnacle of college basketball. And of course, all the players, you know, Coach Davis's players, Samson's players, Crean's players, they're all a part of that too. But you really have to go back to where the some of Samson's players, <laughs> right? I uh, mean, I don't need to see Jamarcus Ellis back in Bloomington. It's it's true. No, yeah. I don't need Armand Bassett. I don't need Jordan Crawford. I don't need DeAndre Thomas. I don't need Eli Holman. Yeah. So okay. half that team. No, no tears will be shed for certain 
certain gentlemen who never really became Hoosiers in the way we all understand in fact, that. Zero of Samson's players. Right? There's not one that Eric he recruited. Gordon. Oh, yeah. Eric Gordon. Yeah, that's, right. that's kind of a big one. I'm sorry. You're right. One. Five. One. That's I'll it. I'll take him. Okay. He has continued to love Indiana since he left, and he only played one year in a really difficult year. So, yes, you're absolutely right. But Mike Roberts, it's boss, and I love him just getting into it with Dane. Yeah. I mean, yeah. come on. Dane just pisses people off. Did you hear when you asked him for one more story? It, 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 where do I where start? Where do I start? I think he could give us two hours on Dane. No problem. But maybe the way to do that is bring Dane in, too. We may have to do a Boss Dane podcast. But also, much of it will not be allowed to be put on the podcast. Because you know that with Dane, there is some just wholly inappropriate shit going on. We do have two... Two assistant coaches at two of the most prominent basketball programs in the just country. Could ruin both of them. Maybe, maybe we just set up that scenario in Knicks one night, and anybody who's back can listen to it. Yeah. and not repost anything they heard anywhere. But yeah, but like a Dave Chappelle comedy concert, everybody has to give their phone yes. at the beginning. Yeah, like you cannot have any recording device on you if you're going to be around the unfettered, unfiltered stories of Dane Fight. I think we could like sell tickets for. Charity and really, really, we could pack the bluebird again just to hear those guys go at it. It would be a great animated series to do the stories of Dane Fife. <laughs> <laughs> Where you just have him or the guys telling Dane Fife stories and just animate what happened. Yeah, like, I yeah. mean, that would be good. Look, I, I think, um, I think, I, I meant what I said. I don't remember an assistant coach search being that focused on because, look, the end of the Crean era was awful. It, it had put the, the program back in the shitter. And we were all kind of disenfranchised and really upset about it. And he had lost the state of Indiana. Wait, is it disenfranchised or disenchanted? Well, both of those are words. D- well, yeah, I know. But disenfranchised, is it, does that... Tell me what that means. Like we just Disenfranchised means you don't, don't feel be- like you're no. part of that thing anymore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like so, so few players from the state of Indiana would lead us to feel disenfranchised. Yes. Sure. Okay. I mean, I'm going with it. Right. No, I'm, I'm slower. I don't so. think disenchanted would work. I guess it would there, but that's, I mean, that's what I would have used. Really? So when you like he's di- a sorcerer yeah. and, and he had an, he had an enchantment over us and now we were disenchanted. No, well, you can say we are definitely enchanted with Indiana university basketball. That's true. And, and at that point, we, we were, were not. not. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. You know what? We were disenchanted and disenfranchised. You know what we really were? We were disenchanchized. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, but the, the, the long decline, kind of, from Cody Zeller, Yogi Ferrell, through losing the state, through then bringing in, you know, and a lot of people wanted an Indiana guy when Archie got brought in, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. But he came in, and then he filled out a staff. He did bring in Ed Schilling, but most people who knew did not think of Ed Schilling as an Indiana guy. He wasn't an IU guy. He wasn't. He's, He's definitely from the state, but not... Not, not an IU guy. Mm-hmm. Didn't know what that really was. Mm-hmm. And turns out it didn't work. 
Yeah. And so I think everybody, when that position opened up, I mean, you heard the rumor. Should we bring in, go offer it to Calbert Chaney? Go, what about A.J. Guyton? What about- Billy Donovan. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about the assistant. I know, I was yeah. just kidding. Yeah. Um, so I think there was so much focus on what is Archie going to do with that spot? And we had two years of underperforming. Mm-hmm. And so when he gave it and hired Mike, it was like, okay, this is kind of cool because everything you read was that Mike was so respected in the world of college basketball as far as his mind goes, Mm -hmm. his work ethic. And it seemed like Archie got it that, you know, you can say you hired the best person for the job, of course, but clearly him being an IU guy mattered to Archie. He saw the benefit of that. And so it just felt very good. And then as we've been able to watch Mike over the year and watch his intensity, it is refreshing because Tom Ostrom and Bruiser Flint clearly fill a different role than mm-hmm. what Mike does. And, and I think Mike was being a little humble. Clearly, he's bringing the international ties and he's bringing a good, strong basketball mind. And, and he's, he's coast ties, too, along with Bruiser. Sure. That's, that's both of their domain now. And he's bringing the Indiana connection. But he's also bringing an intensity to it that matches Archie's. That, that seems to complement Bruiser and, and Tom Ostrom really well. Mm-hmm. That it just feels good. This staff feels really good. And we're seeing some dividends. The team got better this last year. Recruiting is picking up more and more. And, and recruiting is a team effort. Because yeah. when you come in for an official visit, you're exposed to all of them. If one of the coaches pisses you off, that's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth. Well, and in, in their practices, we know that Coach Roberts... He's a big man. He's working with the bigs. And, you know, we want to get some more big boys coming in there year after year. And I think it's got to help when you're one of these players coming in at 6'10 and you see a guy your size who, you know, knows the position, know what it's like to battle down low and is going to be your guy for a lot of that go-to. So I think it's whereas we know we're going to be in good shape with point guards. Clearly, Christian Land and Rob Finnessy were like, oh, Coach Miller, that's my guy. He knows what I'm going to be dealing with. Not to mention, Bruiser was a Division One guard. Was he a point guard or a shooting guard? I don't know. Yeah. I don't but, know. But, but, the, but a the, guard. The fact was there wasn't, there wasn't a guy pushing seven feet greeting you right. when you walked into Assembly Hall. And, and I think that, as, as maybe as superficial as it seems on the surface— no, I'm like, there's, you kind of have to be that size and play at that area of the court at that level to know what it's really like. There is one downside that, that we should at least talk about, which is when Archie and this staff memorializes themselves as the answer and we win multiple national championships and they build the statues for all of them. There's not enough bronze to build the Mike Roberts statue. That's an issue. They'll, maybe they'll have to have him sitting. They'd have to have him sitting. Just yeah. he's on he's on a knee. I he guess it still knee. it still takes up as much bronze. Yeah, it's still a lot of bronze. But at least the sight lines. But you even. could hide him, right? Like they're all lined up. He's behind them, so you only build his head. Yeah, his upper body. His head is as big as Archie's top half of his body. I I will say this. Um, when the success inevitably continues to to grow with this program and these coaches, assistant coaches, start getting cherry-picked for their own programs, we, we do have on record, this was, I'm not sure if this was right before or right after he said we could stay in his basement, but you went down on two knees in Nick's English hut 
and made him promise to you he would stay for at least three seasons. And he kind of looked up, thought about it, and was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll make that commitment right here to you. I did. I begged him. Yeah. So um, we at least a couple more years of boss man in Bloomington. Then I went home and threw away those pants because you don't want anything touching the ground at Nick's. No, no. Nothing. It, 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 was, it was worth it. Well, that was a fun one. It, it's awesome to talk to the people that are there, you know, responsible for making this thing go. And I just hope he's there for a long time. And then I hope he has a great career as a head coach somewhere at a school we don't play. Yeah, I'm torn. I want him to be there for a long time, but you want him to go and and, and do their own thing eventually. So After one, we win. Yeah, yeah. Get us a couple titles and then after we'll let we you go oh, see, peacefully. I'd, I'd be okay after one. But, you know, what, let's win. Let's win first. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E, no I, but, but the, the sometimes, sometimes Y. And we will be back at you next Tuesday with another episode from Hoosier History. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> from the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss a unique matter. We won't be satisfied until we hang on all the banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.